You know what I found super helpful in life lately, as of late? Is when my phone rings at home or on my cell phone, it's, it'll tell me if it's a spam call. Like it'll say spam warning, like potential spam call. And then, what I, I, then I can just ignore the call. You know what I wish? I wish all of life had a spam warning. <laughs> like all of life had a warning about what might be coming. Years ago before COVID, uh, my wife and I, uh, we're getting ready, celebrating, getting ready to celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary, and so we we had never been on a cruise before. We'd never been to Alaska before, so we decided let's take a cruise to Alaska. So we booked the cruise, and we got it all handled. and And then COVID hit, <laughs> and so when COVID hit, the uh, the insurance that would normally cover a trip like that, they got kind of a they they, they got kind of a they they said, well, we don't insure when a pandemic hits the whole earth. <laughs> so we lost every, our whole investment in that trip. And uh, we're like, what did it have been? It would have been so cool to get like a spam warning, like don't book the trip, right? Or, hey, don't get into that relationship or, hey, don't take that job or, hey, don't go down this path. Like a spam warning in all of life would be really, really amazing. Well, we do kind of have a spam warning in the word of God in that it helps protect us from believing error about God, about who Jesus is and about what he's come to do in the earth, what he's come to do to set us free, to adopt us into his family, to give us new life in him. So the more we are acquainted with God's word of the Old and the New Testament, when we come across teachings that just don't sound right, we can reference the word and say, nah, that's not exactly what the Bible says, or that's not exactly what God intended for that passage of scripture. And we can kind of get a spam warning, like something goes off in our mind, in our spirit, like, hey, there's something off on that. We can investigate further or just avoid that all together. So wouldn't that be amazing to have like a spam detection, like all throughout life? I would love, well, we're going to at least take what we do have <laughs> and uh, use the Bible as our spam detection so that we can be careful and sure about what we believe about God. And so the title of the message today, in keeping with what we've been talking about as we've studied First John, the title is, Who is the Jesus of the Holy Bible? We talked a little bit last week about what others believe about Jesus, and there have been people from the time of Jesus until now that have different opinions about Jesus. And so this passage is John's testimony from his experience with Jesus, the Son of God, as he walked the earth with him, but also as he received revelation from the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy God of the universe, downloaded information and spoke to him what should be written in 1 John. So this passage is John's testimony concerning the Son of God, concerning Jesus. Again, what we believe about Jesus matters. It absolutely matters. We spent most of the message last week discussing this topic because, again, throughout history, up until now, false teachers have been promoting false doctrine concerning him. So in this chapter, the Apostle John continues to address false teaching about Jesus. As we've kind of studied this book, uh, we've discussed, talked about the Gnostic influence influence in the early church. And so there was a Gnostic influence in the early church, first, second century. It kind of died out by the sixth century, but was really prominent in the first and second 
century. And so uh, just to give us a little more information about Gnostics and what they believe, Gnostics believed that a lesser deity, a lesser God created the material world and that this lesser deity called a demiurge is the originator of evil. So this is what they believed. So this is why they believe that the physical world is essentially evil and corrupt. Gnostics believe that the world, the material physical world is evil. And so when Jesus came in a physical body, they rejected him. They rejected him because of the way that he came. We see as we read through the scriptures that the Jews rejected him for the same reason, for the way that he came, because they had an expectation and Jesus came in a completely different way. That for another time. So the Gnostics reject Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one, as the Messiah, as the, the savior of the world sent from God because he came in a human body. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that the enemy of our souls, we come up with a doctrine, a belief about the universe and about God that would directly conf conflict, conflict with the incarnation. It's like, oh, Jesus comes in the flesh. Let's come up with something that would cause people to be confused about Jesus. And let's bring in Gnosticism so that people are confused about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek gnosis, which means knowledge. And so it's not just knowledge that we get from reading any kind of book, but it's more of a mystical and esoteric knowledge that they're talking about. It's a mystical and esoteric knowledge that's reserved for a small group of people. And so this esoteric knowledge wasn't available to everybody. And these Gnostics believed that anything in the material world was evil. And so everything that they believed was actually, actually contrary to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Esoteric knowledge of spiritual truth was held by the ancient Gnostics to be the essential to salvation. Like you had to be a part of the club. Like you had to be on the inside of this club in order to have the revelation, the information so that you might actually be saved. Is that what Bible believing Christians believe? No. And so that's why John is writing. He's writing to confront this error that is floating around in the first century. Bible believing Christ followers believe salvation is through the God-man, Jesus the Christ, the incarnate God-man. This is what Bible-believing Christians believe, that salvation is through Christ and in Christ alone. Bible-believing Christ followers believe Jesus is the only means of salvation. So the enemy's plan is to get people confused about salvation and how we get saved. God's plan is to make that process uber, super clear. So that if we know that we need salvation, we know from the scripture what we must do to be saved. We must believe on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. And so it's not a secret that's being hidden from us, but it's a gift that's made available to all of us. Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. Jesus made it very clear. So if you're here today and you're wondering, man, I, how do I get 
saved? How do we get eternal life? It is through the person and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gnostics and others believe that mystical knowledge was the key to salvation. So the book of 1 John was written to counter false teachings of esoteric and Gnostic theories floating around in the culture. So as a reminder, esoteric refers to secret traditions or knowledge reserved for a few, and they require an initiation to learn or understand. You have to be in the club. I went to a Mormon church years ago when I was a little guy, and I was able to sit through part of the service, but at some point in the service, maybe you know what I'm talking about. I haven't been to a Mormon church for a long time, but I, at some point in the service, because I wasn't a member, I had to stay put while the rest of the congregation went to another meeting. Because I wasn't in, I couldn't go. So it was very exclusive. So again, esoteric refers to secret traditions or knowledge reserved for the few. They require an initiation to learn or understand. Gnostics considered material existence flawed or evil and held the principal element of salvation to be direct. Listen, they held the principal element of salvation to be direct knowledge of the hidden divinity attained via mystical or esoteric insights. Many Gnostic texts deal not in concepts of sin and repentance. What is the gospel all about? Sin and repentance. But Gnostic texts deal with illusion and enlightenment. So Gnostics, based on what they believe, reject Jesus. Why? Because he came in a human body, in a physical body. So they reject him on that ground. And they also reject him because he offers salvation to all. Salvation is a free gift to anybody who will receive it. Now, not everybody receives the gift of salvation, but it's not a secret to be found out, to be discovered, but it's something that God makes clear in his scripture so that everybody might have the opportunity to know the truth. So this is what John wrote about Jesus in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. Now we get into our text. John's making it very clear who he's writing about. He said, verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. So in the first century, as in now, there were other people named Jesus. Today, you run into people, Hispanic nature, and you say, hey, what's your name? And they'll say, my name is Jesus. How do you spell Jesus? J-E-S-U-S, -S, right? So there's people even in our day who have the name Jesus. It was true then, and it's true now. So John is making it uber clear, very clear to us who he is describing as he writes 1 John. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. So there's the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree on Jesus. They agree who Jesus was. So John once more, and we'll unpack those verses here in just a moment. John once more affirms that it is indeed the historical physical, incarnate Jesus, who is the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God. You know, Jesus still has a physical body. 
He still has a physical body. He says that the Bible tells us that he's in a glorified body. He's in a body like we will have when we go to heaven. We will have a glorified body like the Savior does. How many are ready for that? You're like ready to trade in this old broken down tent, right? I mean, the older we get, the more we want to trade this thing in, right? Like, let's do the exchange now. It's going to be a wonderful exchange, by the way. We get to trade in this broken down thing for something very very good. It's like new life in Jesus. We get to trade in our old broken life for new life in Jesus and get to experience a born again existence as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So John's trying to make it very clear who he's talking about. It was the son of God who came into the world. It was the same divine son who was baptized and received the spirit, the spirit, the water, and the blood. They testify and agree that Jesus is the Christ. At Jesus' baptism in Mark 1, 9 through 11, it says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my, deli- uh, my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And so, as Jesus is baptized in the water, and as he comes out of the water, this, the spirit of the Lord descends upon him like a dove, and the father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And so we get the testimony of God, the testimony of the spirit, and the water. It was the son who, with the father's approval, and in fulfillment of the father's intention, shed his blood. On the, Christ, on the cross to redeem humanity, the spirit, the water, and the blood. God would not be involved in human redemption apart from the Christ's true humanity suffering and dying. Remember when Jesus was on the cross and the guards pierced his side, what flowed out of his side? Water and blood. So when John talks about the three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, as we think through the life of Jesus, we begin to understand specifically who John is talking about so that there can be no confusion about who John is speaking of. Water and blood became therefore the key word, the key words of the true understanding of the incarnation. In the early church, then and now, when we speak of water and the blood, and when we speak of the spirit, we know that the writer is speaking about Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God, the Messiah who has come to seek and to save those who are lost. So who is the Jesus of the Holy Bible? Number one, Jesus is the God man. He is the incarnate. So when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about the incarnate God man, the, a member of the Trinity, the second member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if we define Jesus as the God-man, we've eliminated the Jesus, the other Jesuses that every other faith in the world identifies with. But when we identify Jesus as the God-man, the incarnate, eternal God, who came as a man, humbled himself, and died on a cross for our sins, we've separated ourselves from the rest of the pack that says Jesus was maybe a good teacher, 
maybe even a holy man. He was all kinds of things, but he certainly was not deity. He certainly was not God. But we know from scripture that the that the Jesus of the Bible was incarnate. He was the God man. Colossians 1:15 says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn does not mean created. Firstborn means preeminent, superior, the heir of all things. And we see that in the scripture, that firstborn, that terminology is used for Israel. Israel was called the firstborn of God. King David was the firstborn. Now, King David wasn't the oldest in his family, but God declared him the firstborn. Positionally so, he was the heir. He was preeminent. He was he was the most important. In Psalm 89, 27, it says this of David, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So that's, that's what the Bible means when it uses the terminology firstborn. I'm establishing you as the preeminent, most important, um, of highest value in my kingdom work. So firstborn means superior, preeminent, surpassing all others, heir of all things. So again, Israel was called God's firstborn. David was called God's firstborn. Uh, Jesus was called God's firstborn. Jesus is the God man. First Timothy 2.5 says this, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. One mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the God man. He took on the form of humanity so that he might save those who needed salvation. Uh, speaking of all of humanity. Listen, if you don't believe this truth from scripture, then you're believing in a different Jesus. This is why we unpacked last week some things that other religious systems believe about Jesus. They believe in a Jesus, but they don't believe in the, the Jesus of the Bible. They believe and they're putting their hope in something other than the real Jesus. And they're, they're, that's going to be a sorry day at the end of all time when they realize, oops, I put my faith in the wrong Jesus. And so I don't want that for us. And I want us to be informed so that when we encounter people who believe in a different Jesus, then we can enter into dialogue and have conversation with them, helping them to see the truth so that they might understand and be saved by the real Jesus. What we believe about Jesus actually matters and our salvation hangs in the balance. It's no wonder the enemy works so hard to dilute and to convolute and to pervert and to confuse humanity about Jesus. We need to constantly be referring to the pages of the scriptures so that we understand what God meant when he sent his son, Jesus, to die for our sins so that we might have eternal life. What does God say about his son, Jesus? I think it might be important to hear what God might have to say about his son. So number one, who is the Jesus of the Holy Bible? Jesus is the God-man. But also number two, Jesus is the only savior of the world. He's 
the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only savior of the world. It's narrow, I know. And that's hard for us in our culture to be so narrow. But that is what the scripture says. The road to life is narrow and few find their way on that path. The road to destruction is wide and many find their, their way on that path. Back to 1 John 5, verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his son. Verse 10. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So we believe what God says about his son, or we make God a liar. Like another, port the, another portion of scripture that says, if you say you have not sinned, you make God a liar. You are a liar, you're making God a liar. If you believe in God, then you must believe in his son because God declares... God declares about his son truth that he is the savior of the world. Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. And he's talking about eternal life through the forgiveness and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God declares that salvation comes through his son and that if you have the son, you can be confident that you have life. But if you do not have the son of God, you do not have life. What does it mean to have the son? Maybe it's helpful to tell you what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is a single prayer offered up that doesn't bring about any kind of life change. It's not fire insurance. It says if I invite Jesus into my life, I'm saved, and I can live the rest of my life any way that I choose to live the rest of my life. Being in Christ means being under his lordship. If we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And so being in Christ means being under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so that means, like when you stand before the Lord someday and he's going to say, hey, why should I let you into heaven? Maybe you'll say that. Maybe you'll say something different. But why, you know, theoretically, why should I let you in heaven? You might say, well, I was actually a pretty good person. Right? Ah, wrong answer, right? Wrong answer, right? Um, you might say, well, I kept the commandments. Ah, wrong answer, right? The only acceptable answer to this question is by your grace. Because you're good, not because I am good. Because you are faithful when I've been unfaithful. God, I am here because you died and you took the penalty of my sins because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, the Lord. And so I am here only because of you, Jesus. Now, if you ask people of other faiths, they might have Jesus a part of the equation. It's Jesus plus all kinds of other things. But for Bible-believing Christians, it is 
Jesus and only Jesus. Now, out of that new life that we find in Jesus, we will do plenty of amazing things and we'll actually be held accountable for the amazing works and things that we do with the rest of our lives. We'll actually stand before the Lord and he'll say, what did you do with your life once you gave yourself to me? And you will give an account for the way that you lived your life, not whether you will go to heaven or hell, but whether you'll receive rewards or not according to the way that you lived your life. So your life will be measured by a gracious God who's given you eternal life, but then also left you here on the earth to do what you have been called to do. Whoever's in the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Uh, he wrote, I write these things to you in verse 13, who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So this is the Jesus that we're talking about, the one and only Savior of the world. Who is the Jesus of the Holy Bible? Number three, Jesus is actively involved with people. Isn't that good news? So like he could have said one and done, I died for you. You're on your own, right? <laughs> you're in the family, but you're not. But Jesus didn't do that. He actually hears us when we pray. And we're going to unpack that a little bit. Verse 14 says this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's awesome, right? But what we need to hear is that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So what if we're asking something that's not according to his will? It's not like he doesn't hear us physically, but he's not going to do anything about what we've asked. He doesn't hear us and plan to respond to us. So how do we know if we're asking according to his will? Well, we have to understand this portion of scripture as we look at the rest of the scripture that God has given us to us. We, we, we interpret scripture with scripture. If we're struggling to understand what this passage means, then we need to realize that the rest of the Bible will help us to understand what it means. And so elsewhere in the scripture, we read that prayer must be offered in faith. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. And so we need to be offering our prayers in faith, right? And usually, you know, we're mostly praying in pretty desperate times. Like we're not praying that we'll make it like across the street. Like unless like the street's really gnarly and wide and busy. So like 30 years ago when I'm down in Southern California with my wife and our car breaks down on the 210 freeway and I got to cross like six or eight lanes of freeway to get to the off ramp so that I can get to a phone because it was before cell phones were a thing, right? I was praying, right? <laughs> because it was like Frogger. You guys familiar with the game Frogger? <laughs> if you're young, you're not familiar with it. If you're old, you're laughing, right? So Frogger, you're like trying to make it, right? Without getting squashed, right? So I was praying, Lord, help me to make it across the 210 freeway so I can get to the off ramp so I can call and get a tow truck to get my wife out of the Buick that's sitting on the side of the road. My wife and my daughter, I'm not sure if, we had, if Stephen was born yet, but it was something around that time. He was probably in the womb, right? So you got to pray with faith, right? Believing that God is big enough to hear and to respond and to answer your prayer. So how do you pray according to God's will? You got to pray with faith. And you got to pray in Jesus' name. Again, that's kind of the same thing as saying in Jesus' name, according to your will, Lord. And so when we're praying, we're saying, God, Sometimes I don't know how to pray, Lord, but I want your will to be done in my life. And so whatever that looks like, Lord, in Jesus' name, would you just do what you 
know is right in this circumstance, in this situation. We got to pray by faith according to God's will in Jesus' name. And John 15 talks about those who abide in Christ will be able to pray and the Lord will hear them. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, it just means to be close to God. You, you get to know God when you spend time with him, right? Just like when you spend time with any person. You get, the more time you spend with them, the more you know their hearts and their desires and their dreams and you know all about them. The more you spend with them, if you have deep conversations and meaningful interaction with that person. So God's calling us to abide in him. We're supposed to abide in him and him in us and we'll bear much fruit. So in that abiding, we begin to understand who God is, what he desires from us. And we begin to pray according to his will because we know who he is more and more. And in Mark eleven twenty five, 25, it says, actually, if God's going to hear your prayers, you've got to actually, you've got to forgive. Why does that keep coming up every time? I want to I wasn't planning to read Mark eleven twenty five, 25, but who's got a Bible? Anybody got a Bible? Did you guys bring a Bible today? Good. So most, if you've got a phone, you've got a Bible app, right? So let's just take a look at Mark eleven twenty five. 25. Is that what I said? Mark eleven twenty five 25 says this. Where's Mark anyway? There it is. Matthew, Mark. There it is. Eleven twenty-five. 25. I'll start in verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if, you've had, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. <laughs> so, there's a condition when we pray for forgiveness. Have we indeed forgiven those in our life who have offended us? So I think what God's getting at is that if I've done such an amazing work of forgiving your sins, you should be so grateful that you're willing to forgive anybody's sins who have sinned against you or who have offended you. And if you're not willing to do that, then your heart's probably in the wrong place and you need to do some heart business. You need to allow me to do some heart surgery in your life. So if we're going to pray according to God's will, we've got to make sure our hearts are in the right place, that we've forgiven those who have offended us, who have hurt us, so that we might experience the same grace from the living God. We need to pray by faith in Jesus' name, abiding, forgiving others. And so there's a few things from the full counsel of God's word that help us consider when trying to pray according to God's will, what am I, am, am I praying properly? Back to our text. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So by faith, if I'm praying according to God's will, it's just a matter of time before he answers that prayer. I remember praying for my family members for like decades before they finally came to faith in Jesus Christ. Like for some of them, it took 30 years or more before they finally came to faith in Jesus Christ. But I was praying according to God's will and just trusting the fulfillment, the answer to those prayers over time. Now, we may get answers to prayers the same day, the next day, the next year, but it might be 30 years. But as we pray in faith, we'll see God answer those prayers. 
Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. So now we're called to pray for other people. We're to pray for our own needs, but we're also to pray for other people. There is sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. At first glance, it's kind of a confusing passage to understand, but let's just step back from it for a moment. First service, I read through this big commentary, but I don't think it was super helpful. So I'm just going to share with you what I know to be true about sin and what the Bible says in the full counsel of God's word about sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So sins leading to death would be, the commentator wrote something like this. That type of sin is more of a, um, frame of mind, I think is what he said. Meaning, I think this is what he meant. It's a perspective that says, I'm not going to Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. The scripture talks about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And the only thing that could be blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, according to scriptures, we look at the full counsel of God's word, uh, we could say, well, blasphemy may be murder. Maybe murders, like man, God can't forgive murder. But then we look at people in the scripture that murder, like King David, maybe. So King David was guilty of murder, but God describes King David as a man after his own heart. So that clearly can't be a sin that is unforgivable and leads to death. All sin leads to death that is unconfessed. But all confessed sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you're here today wondering if you've committed the sin of blasphemy, you're probably okay. Because if you've committed the sin of blasphemy, your heart is so hard toward the Lord that you actually don't care about what he thinks. And you don't care about his forgiveness. But if you've confessed your sin, you need to be sure that he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So John is saying, listen, if you see someone who's sinning that does not lead to death, pray for them. Intercessory prayer will actually see a person delivered from their sin. Their hearts will be opened, their minds will be opened, and they'll confess their sin. Whether they know Christ or not, the person who knows Christ will sometimes fall into sin and as we pray for that person, maybe because they've got blinders on, they don't understand that they're in sin, we pray for them. Intercessory prayer will lead that person to confess their sin and have their sins forgiven. If the person doesn't know Jesus, intercessory prayer will help that person come to faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here a believer in Jesus Christ, it's because somebody, I believe, I believe somebody prayed you in. Somebody proclaimed openly the gospel that we talked about last week, but then somebody also prayed you into the kingdom. I know that I'm here because somebody prayed me into the kingdom. And so we have a responsibility to also pray people into the kingdom, pray them into repentance and into the kingdom. Now, if someone's just got a blasphemous heart and their position is they don't need Jesus, I think we can still pray for them, but man, it's going to take a super, well, I guess like in every circumstance, it's going to take a wonderful supernatural work of God to open the hearts and the eyes of those people so they might come to faith in Jesus. John said, all wrongdoing is sin, 
but there is sin that does not lead to death. And so we, we've just maybe unpacked that a little bit. Maybe I've confused you more than I've helped you. I don't know. But let's go to verse 18. <laughs> verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Coupled with verse 17, John's pointing us to the seriousness of sin. Like we've got to take sin serious in our lives. Part of understanding who Jesus is will help us to take sin serious in our lives. A lot of people believe that Jesus is just a fairy godmother with a wand. And every time we sin and we confess it, he just kind of hits us over the head with that sprinkly fairy dust and our sins are forgiven. And that's the end of it without any expectation beyond that. But when Jesus said that you must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about a life change. And we know from John's writings that those who are in Christ do not continue in sin. That means we don't continue in a lifestyle of sin. We may sin, we may stumble, like most of you probably sinned in word, thought, or deed today. <laughs> like maybe, you know, your wife used your toothbrush instead of her own. That just might mess you up for a moment. You're like, in word, thought, or deed, you're having some thoughts that you, or maybe there's some sin floating around in there. Bad example. Maybe you're driving to <laughs> church and somebody cuts you off and your natural response is not all that God honoring. It's probably sin even. Whatever it may be, if I venture to guess, in your life and in mine, sometime today we probably already sinned. But if we recognize that we've sinned and confess our sins, and the reality of the gospel is I believe that Jesus died for our sins as believers, past, present, and future. There's going to be some things that I do that I don't realize I've done that are sin and I've never confessed, but I know that they're under the blood because of the fullness of the process in which Christ died for my sins. It was thorough and complete and not lacking anything. Now, if I know that I've sinned, I need to, for my own heart, I need to make sure that I'm confessing that because, Lord, I don't want there to be anything between me and you. Say, Lord, I, I shouldn't have had that thought about that person. Would you forgive me? I don't want my heart to be jaded at all. I don't want to carry any, any unforgiveness at all, Lord. I just want to be free from that burden, right? So you just confess that sin, right? So whatever it may be, you confess it. We know that everyone who's been born of God, born again, does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the true God and eternal life. Verse 21, little children, keep yourself from idols. So who is Jesus of the Holy Bible? Number one, he is the God-man. And again, that would eliminate the belief of every other school of thought, every other religious system and structure in the world. The thing that separates us from every other religious system in the world is that we believe in a completely different Jesus that has been defined for us in the pages of scripture. So everyone who does not believe this is part of a different tribe. Jesus is the only savior of the world. This is what the Bible declares about Jesus. He is the only savior of the world. He is actively involved with people. 
And number four, Jesus is the true God. He is God. He is deity. Here at the climax of the letter, John ascribes full deity to Jesus. He is God, eternal. He's not created. He was never born, although he's called firstborn, preeminent, supreme. He was never born. He is alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. First John, or John 1 talks about how he created all things and all things were created for him and through him. Remember the old song, he's got the whole world in his hands. 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 That is theologically sound through and through. He is the creator and the sustainer of the world. He's got the whole world in his hand. He's the savior of the world, actively involved with people. He is the true God. Number five, Jesus is eternal life. We get both of those things from the last verse here. He is the true God and eternal life. And then John says, little children, keep yourself from idols. We've all are tempted by idolatry in our lives. The Bible says you can't serve God and mammon, God and money. Money is a huge idol, especially in our, in our culture. We've got to be careful about our, the, the God of money. We've got to be careful about the God of possessions, the God of relationships, the God of all kinds of things that lure us into a lifestyle of brokenness and sinfulness. Jesus is eternal life, 1 John 5, 11, And this is the testimony that God gave us. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die physically, yet shall he live eternally. Again, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is the Jesus of the Holy Bible. If we hold true this revelation in our hearts, we will abide with him and we will allow him to abide with us. We will know, he, know who he is and he will know us. We will pray and he will hear our prayers. It will be a, a wonderful encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we don't understand who he is, then our life will spiral out of control. If we don't understand who he is, we will compromise in every arena and area of our lives. If we're not sure about who he is, we will be, we will be squishy in our lives as committed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why John's so serious about it. He wants us to know so that we live accordingly, so that our lives can be transformed, so that we can be salt and light in this earth, so others might know what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. With that, let's go ahead and stand up. You can invite the worship team up. And if you're here today and you haven't given your life to Jesus, you don't have that assurance of salvation, then I just want to encourage you that you can have that assurance of salvation. You simply say, Lord, I need you. I absolutely need you, and I don't want to live life without you. I need you to forgive me 
I need you to adopt me into, I, I want you to be adopt, to adopt me into your family. I want you to show me and demonstrate to me your unconditional love, Lord God, and I want to follow you all the days of my life. So part of confessing your faith is confessing your allegiance to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So you say, Lord, I, I give my life to you today, and I'm going to give my life to you every day. No matter the circumstances, I'm going to choose today and every day to give my life to you. And if you do that, then you are in Christ. And if you do that, if you are in Christ, then you will have eternal life. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have life and that our lives would reflect that life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship.